I wonder if you ever heard of a guy a few years ago named Andrew Mason. Andrew Mason was an entrepreneur who was actually uh, in his late 20s and he was still messing around as a music major at Northwestern University. And um, he decided after fooling around with some ideas to play on some words. He took the word coupon, like as in a grocery store coupon, and uh, the word group, and he started an online social media sensation a few years back called Groupon. And uh, the site offered daily discounts on services and products. And, and right after he started it, it was expected to hit a value of $350 million, that company, that year. The uh, uh, Google reportedly offered $5.3 billion to buy Groupon out. And he was thinking about it, but they were deciding if they were going to go public. I don't know the end of the story. I just know that Andrew Mason went from being a pretty poor music major in college to being a multi-gabillionaire just about that quickly. Uh, another story that I ran into uh, was a lady named Sandy Stein. Um, she comes under the title of inventor, but at age 52, she was still in her career as an airline stewardess. And uh, she invented an accessorized key clasp to help women avoid losing their keys in their purse. And I wanted to just send a word over here to Janet. We need to find one of those. We've, we've lost our extra van key. Let me put it this way. I have lost our second van key. So I regularly go in her purse to get the van keys. And this would be a really great idea right here. Um, it is a accessorized key clasp to help women avoid losing their keys in their purse. She called the product Key Finder's Purse. Cool name, huh? Key Finder's Purse. Within four months of launching her product, Stein's company reached one million in sales. And at the eighth month mark, over one million units were sold. Uh, the earnings of the forecast of the mother company that bought them out was to be 5.6 million that next year. That's what they were forecasting they were gonna make. Airline stewardess to millionaire, helping ladies find keys in their purses. Don't you think, like, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> One more. Rick Norsigian, who was a collector, he was a local painter. Um, I, I assume that meant like an artist painter. Maybe he painted houses too, I'm not sure. It just says he was a local painter. I think he was an artist. He found some photographic prints at a garage sale for roughly 50 bucks. Last summer, you know where this is going, don't you? Last summer, the flea market find became the bargain of a lifetime. Historians confirm that the collection of glass negatives belonged to the legendary nature photographer Ansel Adams and are worth around 200 million. And you think to yourself, how come that never happens to me? You know, why didn't I think a few years ago of, of pet rocks or beanie babies? I mean, that's just not that hard to do. Because why? Because wouldn't we love to have more money than we have today? Wouldn't we love to be rich? 
I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 19, and as we enter this sermon time today, I suspect that if we took a poll, nearly everyone in the room would say to themselves, I wish I were rich, or I wish I had more money than I have now. That's not necessarily wrong or bad. By the end of our sermon time today, I want to encourage you to be in a mindset where we have a contentedness with where God has us in life. Not to take away any hard work ethic here uh, or any uh, desire to improve our living and lifestyle. I think that all of that falls under a Christian biblical work ethic. That's not really what we're talking about. What we're talking about today is what we've incurred, what we've incurred as Jesus encountered a conversation with a very wealthy young man and in his desire to be wealthy and to stay wealthy, he lost sight of true wealth. So you might say that he was a wealthy pauper. Externally very rich in this world, but in light of eternity, he was steeped in nothing but poverty. I want to actually reread that part of the story. It'll take a little bit of time for us to read the entire section. This is Matthew chapter 19. If your notes are handy, um, we'll be able to click off the story, breaking it down, understanding then the follow-up after this rich young man um, that is a ruler in our parallel passages in Mark and Luke. We understand that he's a young man. We understand that he is a ruler, probably a religious ruler of the day. Last week, we talked in detail about him and how he turned away from the Lord after asking him one of the most important questions anyone could ever ask, and that is, how can I have eternal life? He turned away sad because he had, remember, he had great riches. And the part of the point of the message today is, is that wealth in this world isn't necessarily all that it's cracked up to be. Let's read our text. Matthew chapter 19, beginning with verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself as well. The young man said to him, all of these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. There it is. One of the saddest moments in a person's life where they allow something that they're holding on to in this world to keep them from an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ that leads to everlasting life. Now verse 23 begins our text for today. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Well, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, 
You who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold, and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. And in case I forget it, I'll say it again when we pick this up four weeks from today, Lord willing. That verse 30, but many who are first will be last and the last first, is actually the the introductory concept for the parable, parable of the laborers in the vineyard, which is just an odd parable that makes most of us very uncomfortable. And we'll look forward to breaking that down later. Well, what I want you to see is that when we hit verse 23, this young man has just walked away. He's had great wealth and uh, he, he had a good question. He evidently was bothered by some inner insecurity that he hadn't quite kept the commandments, although he claimed that he had. And he wondered if there was just kind of some catchphrase somewhere. Is there another commandment that I might have missed? And Jesus lays out for him a list of of commandments that were pretty easy to gauge externally. Adultery, murder, lying, honor your father and your mother, check, 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 check. And then he throws in that love your neighbor as yourself and Jesus is setting him up like some kind of Venus flytrap to snap around him and to catch him in his own uh, uh, self-pride as he says, I've kept all these commandments. And so then Jesus puts it on him and he says, all right, if you've kept all the commandments, take your stuff, go sell it, give the money to the poor, then come follow me. And he goes away sad because he had great possessions, proving then that he had not kept the commandments and that he did not love his neighbor as himself. And he did not want them taking their fork and eating off of his dessert plate because he loved himself more. What an interesting position we find ourselves and the man walks away. You know, in Mark's account, it says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus has some emotion about him here. I take it that the disciples have observed this entire scenario. Probably didn't take very long for this conversation to take place. And then Jesus turns and number one, we have a teachable moment with the master teacher, Jesus. We have this teachable moment. The disciples have just watched it happen. And Jesus says to his disciples, and we know it's a teachable moment because of this phrase that is a a repeated phrase in the New Testament. Truly, I say to you. All right. Verily, I say to you. Truly, I say to you. Listen to me. He's going to make some point and he's, he's striking it with a couple of underlines here. So whenever Jesus turns to you and says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, or truly, I say unto you, you know that you really want your antennas up. Now, you've got to be careful because everything Jesus says is absolutely equally important, isn't it? But you understand what I'm saying. Our Lord is setting up his disciples to capture their attention because he wants to drive home an important principle of the spiritual life that applies to everyday living. Jesus wants to drive home an important truth, an important truth. Truly, I say unto you. So we, we see that phrase. He comes out then with what number two on our outline is a most radical statement in the ears of the disciples. All right. So look what he says. Verse 23. Truly, I say unto you. Now it is only with difficulty that a rich person will enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, I get that. All right. It's a little bit of a struggle. 
Get my eyes off me, get my eyes off my project, get my eyes off my money. But then he goes on and he actually ratchets, ratchets up the difficulty with which it takes a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And he gives this like colloquial figure of speech. Again, I tell you, okay, I want to emphasize to you, verse 24, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. All right? Now, the reason this was a radical statement is because in the mindset of the, Jude, the Judaists of the day and, and the Pharisees and the Jews of the day, to be wealthy was an indicator of the blessing of God and that you were evidently doing things right so that God would pour out blessing upon you. And so what you need to understand that it was a common mindset that wealth was a testimony of God's blessing and approval. Wealth was a testimony of God's blessing and approval. It's a little bit like, uh, how many of you remember my friend Dave Bogue? Um, we need to have Dave back out here. Pray for Dave. I prayed for him this morning down in my dungeon as I pray through a bunch of my pastor friends as I kind of let my mind go across the country. Um, and and uh, Dave pastors a, a church in near Akron, Ohio. He's about into his fourth or fifth year now after a long life of itinerant work. And he loves his congregation. And he's growing. But Dave is the one who got us going with Finish Line Ministries Malawi. I've already referenced them this morning. And if you recall in his earlier years, you, you should see Dave now. He's, he's lost about, I uh, can't remember, almost 100 pounds. But Dave was kind of a pudgy guy. He's kind of a big roly-poly guy, and he was kind of a happy-go-lucky guy. And, uh, and, um, and when we would go to Malawi, all right, and minister, Dave was the biggest guy on the team. Now, he was also the, the CEO, the head of the ministry, and one of the things Johanni taught me was how the people treat Dave was partly because of his, his extra weight. Because in Malawi, where the people are starving to death, if you are overweight, then that is very desirable to them. They, that is a very desirable quality. So some of you, move to Malawi and you'll feel a lot better about yourself. All right? But because food is hard to get, what does it mean if you're overweight? It means that you're very wealthy. It means that you are a very well-to-do person and you don't miss many meals. And that's a little bit the mindset of what the disciples and what the Jews of this day would have had. The idea was that if you are wealthy, somewhere along the line, God has smiled upon you. See, the other part of that equation is, if you have money, what can you do when you go to the temple and you give your alms in the offering? Why, you can blow your trumpet, can't you? Remember that part of the story early on, Matthew chapter 6 about, in the, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount? How the rich people would love to go to the temple and make a great to-do out of giving their offerings. And they could clang their, their, their coin as they gave it. And everybody knew they were giving a lot of money because God had blessed them and they were so spiritual. And Jesus is undermining that concept. Actually, Jesus is saying it could be that nothing is further from the truth. And as Jesus does, sometimes he pokes you in the, in the eye with one finger and sometimes he pokes you in both eyes at the same time with two fingers. So it was a common mindset that wealth was a testimony of God's blessing. Really what Jesus is saying here is that, number three, it was 
an impossible achievement. Verse 24 is that odd little saying, kind of a proverb of this camel going through the eye of the needle. Nobody knows exactly where that saying originated. Some say it was a take on a Persian proverb that they had adopted in Israel at this time and changed it from an elephant going through the eye of a needle to a more familiar animal to them, a camel going through the eye of a needle. Some people say that this was an example of how difficult it is for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so remember kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, eternal life, the bliss of the hereafter in the presence of God. We're using that in this context pretty much synonymously. The idea that this young man wanted to have everlasting life in the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, in heaven, in the presence of his heavenly father. Jesus is pointing out how difficult it is for a wealthy person to truly follow Christ and have everlasting life. So some people have come up with the idea that, that on, wall, on walled cities, cities that had a wall for protection in the Middle East at this time, found themselves vulnerable after dark um, from bandits. And so they would close the heavy gates of their city, post a guard, and, and they would all be safe inside the city walls. Some people who were traveling or even built their homes would build their homes nearby the outside of the city so that they could quickly get inside the walls. And there is some belief, and some interpreters will suggest, that there was a small door that was off to the side of the main gate so that at night, if travelers or peddlers came along with their camels well laden with goods, they wanted to get into the city walls that they would not open the gates lest it was a ploy for an enemy to get the gates opened at night. So they send somebody up to the gate with loaded camels and uh, they say, hey, we're, we're arriving late. It's midnight. Can you let the gate open so we can come in? Uh, open the gate so we can come in. And, uh, and the guard would open the gate. And then coming out of the shadows would be the warriors and bandits. And they would come and molest the city. And so, so to keep themselves from being able to do that, they had a little side door that they called the eye of the needle. And so what they had to do is they had to get their camel down on his knees and get some prods out. And they had to unload him and poke him through to get him through. And it all sounds good. From all the commentator, commentaries that I've read, there's evidently no real foundation for that story. It makes it seem like a rich man can barely get into, the hev into heaven. Really what I think Jesus is teaching here is that for a rich man on his own, it is impossible to get into heaven. You can't get a camel. I think it's a literal figure of speech. And it's an extreme an eye of a needle that you would put a thread through. How can a camel get through? It can't happen. It can't happen because this is an exaggeration to make a point. But I want you to know that it cannot mean all rich people because there are rich people who are part of the kingdom of God, right? And we have testimonies. So there's something here that Jesus is teaching. He's trying to make a point. I mean, uh, in the notes there, I referenced that it can't mean all rich people all the time, or we would have a problem with guys like Abraham and Job and David and Solomon and Joseph of Arimathea. These were, these were true believers in God, Joseph of Arimathea, a true follower of Christ, and they were known to be wealthy men. There are even more than that in the Bible of godly men. So what's he saying here? Now, part of the answer is found in the, in the response from the disciples. 
So he says, it is, verse 24, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 25 then says, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. All right, wait a minute. You see, their response isn't, okay, it's hard to get into the kingdom of God. They were astonished and they said, who then can be saved? Now, it could be that they partly meant in their mind, they, they had the well-known, I left the N off a no there, known, the known patriarchs might have come to their mind. And so number four was total astonishment, total astonishment as they were thinking, okay, are you telling me that father Abraham is not in the kingdom of God? Are you telling us that the patriarch Job was not a godly man? If they can't get into the kingdom of heaven, then who can? And now Jesus wants to drive home a really important point, And he talks about spiritual enablement. Spiritual enablement. Look what he says. Jesus said to them. Jesus looked at them and he said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. You see, with God, all things are possible. You see, left to himself, man is helpless. And the more riches he has, the more danger he is in, of totally disregarding God and disregarding Christ. Many of you know people like that. Often it is interesting that people who don't have anything, or if they have something and they lose it, will become very bitter and angry towards God rather than allow that to drive them to God. That's why one of the things that I learned in Malawi and I referenced this morning is their poverty and their longing for heaven. I've referenced this before. The church there gathers on Saturday night for three and four and five hour prayer meetings, praying for God to move on Sunday morning. How many people do you think would come here on Saturday night for a three hour prayer meeting, begging God to move among the people on Sunday morning and to use his word and to meet their needs? You know why? Because Saturday night, we're at Outback. Saturday night's movie night. Saturday night, man, that's, that's recovery night from working around the house. I'm not saying that those things are wrong, and many of those things are direct blessing from God. What I'm saying, though, is is that they blunt our spiritual conscience. we got to be careful. Let's take a minute and let's turn to Titus chapter 3, shall we please? Titus chapter 3, and let's just use this as one example of many. I listed listed, uh, Romans chapter 3 as well. This principle is there. First and Second Timothy Titus is just a very short three chapter book. It only takes up one page in my Bible. But here's what I want to illustrate. I want you to listen closely. If you are thinking that you are good enough to get to heaven on your own, it's possible that someone here this morning is thinking like that. It's like there's nothing wrong with me. I'm a good guy. I'm going to heaven. I want you to see that it it is not in our own works. It is not of our own muster that we can get to heaven. In Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, I want you to see what it says here. You see, what is impossible for man is possible for God. Here it is, Titus 3, 4. But when the loving, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, 
By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I mean, we're jumping into the middle of a passage here, but what I want you to see is that it was the loving kindness of God who pursued unrighteous sinners through the work of Christ that brings about salvation. Many of you in this room know this to the point that it's almost a boring fact. And the reality is that people who have been blessed with extra good things can be so distracted in those things that they don't recognize their need. It's like the rich man in the story. He did not want to admit that he had a need. The more wealthy you are, the harder it is to admit that you need help. The only people who come to God for salvation and enter the kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven and eternal life with God are people who know that they need help. And what is it ultimately that we need help from? We need help from our sin. This embedded sin problem that we have because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's in the Romans 3 passage. But there is a loving kindness from God that brings salvation and we are justified, it says, through the working of Christ on the cross, through the mercy and his washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Listen, this is what God does when we humble our hearts and we come to him and we know that we are needy. That's when he does a work that only he can do. He saves us. And I don't want you to notice that he says there, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. There are no good works that we can do that save us. But he poured out, verse 6, richly through Jesus Christ so that we could be justified by his grace. And that word justified is a wonderful word. It's a judicial word. What that word means is it's as though God sits in heaven at a, at a, a, a courtroom table as the judge of the universe. All right? And when people come to him and they are sinners, there is nothing they can do in and of themselves to get rid of their sinfulness. They can't do it. And that's what it means to come to the cross or, or to come and acknowledge that the blood of Jesus Christ is what cleanses me from sin. It's like, I have this sin problem. I can't get rid of it. And now you're standing before the holy judge in the courtroom, our heavenly father. And he looks at you and says, you are a condemned sinner. And the problem with that is, is that there's nothing we can do of our own righteousness. You can start spouting off to the judge then. Hey, I did a good job. I cleaned up trash at the community park. But he only knows that we did it because we wanted everybody to notice our business card that we had on the fence there or whatever. You know, our hearts are just slippery and deceptive and we just don't do things for the right motive in and of ourselves and over and over. And we just have this sin problem. But ultimately, we come and we recognize that the righteousness of Jesus Christ is what cleanses me from sin. So I come to God, I come to the judge and I say in and of myself, I have nothing to offer you but rags and filthy sinfulness. And I lay it down before the judge. The interesting thing about this judge is he has substituted into our place 
his son to pay the penalty for our sin. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And when we acknowledge that and by faith receive that as a free gift from the judge, I will give you, the judge says, freedom from and release from all of your sinfulness through my son who paid the penalty on the cross for your sin. All you have to do is believe it and accept it to be true for you by faith. You do that. The judge then puts down his gavel in a a judicial moment declares us to be righteous as though we had never sinned before. That is what it means to be justified. He takes a dirty, rotten sinner who comes to him through the penal substitution of his son who shed his blood for us. He declares us once for all to be righteous. The interesting thing about that justification that Paul teaches in Romans is that there is now no record in heaven that that sinner was ever a sinner. Once he's declared righteous and justified, positionally speaking, in the mind of the judge, the sinner has now been declared righteous once and for all. And in all of the files of heaven, there is no record anywhere that he was ever a sinner. It only, he only shows up in the Jesus file, only in the Jesus computer, only righteous in Christ. Isn't that interesting? That's what it means to be justified. So back to Matthew chapter 19, that's, what, that's in essence what Jesus is pointing out. The, the giving of money, the wealthy person, you know, building a park for homeless children, all that does not impress God. And, and he depends on himself and he's proud and he's arrogant and he refuses to come to a holy God and say, I need you. I have no hope in and of myself. That which would be impossible for man is possible for God to accomplish his work of salvation. The passage ends with an interesting exchange between Peter and Jesus now. Back at verse 25, when the disciples heard this, they were astonished. Who then could be saved? Jesus said, with man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, well, he's starting to think about himself and maybe not improperly either. Well, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Peter is reminding him, number six, of his personal investment, his personal investment. And Jesus in 28 through 30 clicks off four responses about eternal repayment, eternal repayment. Look what he says. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you in the new world, for some of you, your Bible might say in the regeneration, when the son of man will. Now look at the words carefully. Verse 28. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you in the regeneration or in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and last will be first. There are four things that Jesus references that are spiritual rewards for the person who's willing to lay down and surrender all to Christ. This is a specific answer to Peter. Remember one day Jesus was walking down the shore of the Sea of Galilee and there's Peter mending his nets and he's got a fishing business. And he looks up and Jesus says, come follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. And what did Peter do? He dropped it all and left it. Do you know that of all the disciples, Peter was likely one of the men that was indeed had married and maybe with kids? I don't know what that did to his wife or how much she traveled with him. But Peter was a man who gave up a lot 
to follow Jesus. And that's what he's thinking. So, what's this reward? What's going to happen? And the eternal repayment, first of all, Jesus references letter A, 12 thrones. 12 thrones. You know, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what this is. So we can only kind of put together Scripture and imagine. The other thing that he emphasizes here is this regeneration. This regeneration. It it is likely speaking of the thousand-year earthly rule and reign of Christ yet future that we call the millennium. It's in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. And um, in fact, the idea there is that Jesus is going to return. And it talks in Revelation 20 about a thousand-year reign of Christ. Israel will be the focus. And there's going to be 12 thrones there surrounding him as he rules. The martyrs of the tribulation period will be resurrected to rule with him as well. Some Bible commentaries say that those 12 thrones that are referenced there is what Jesus is talking about here. And that this is a a reference to when Jesus will come. He will return to Jerusalem. And in the millennial period, Satan will be bound for a thousand years. And Jesus will rule out of Jerusalem over a peaceful world. It's going to be utopian-like. This is the part in the Old Testament prophets where they talked about the the lion and the lamb will, will be together. And the serpent and the lamb will be able to be together. And they won't bite each other. And... The serpent won't bite the lamb and the lion and so forth will be tame and it'll eat straw. There'll be a change. There will be a renewal. The idea is regeneration. There will be like a new world here. It'll be this globe. And I don't know how else to take that, but in a literal way that Jesus has yet to fulfill all of his promises to national Israel and that there will be this period of time that's evidently a thousand years in length when Satan and the beast and the false prophet coming out of the revelation, out of the um, um, great tribulation period will be set aside and Jesus is going to rule. And evidently assisting him in that oversight will be the disciples, these apostles, the twelve. The twelve, Judas won't be there, but evidently Matthias will be. And I think that Jesus is evidently referencing Peter. Right now, it doesn't seem so great, but one day you're going to be one of the rulers over the millennial kingdom, this literal kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if that's 100% true, but that's what I think could be referenced there. We know for sure it's a good thing. Secondly, I want you to see the hundredfold return. He says, not only are you going to rule on a, on a throne and be one of the judges over the tribes of Israel, because Israel will be the focus of that millennial thousand year reign period. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold. It's possible that it's, he rattled off the members of the family because Peter himself had had left his personal family, his mother-in-law, his wife, his children, and he is following Jesus, and it had caused complications for his family. And Jesus promises a hundredfold return. You know, uh, he said, and he says, uh, we'll receive a hundredfold and we'll inherit, inherit eternal life. In the parallel passages, it says, in this life and the life to come. There is an inference there that it begins in this life. And you say, well, what does that look like? So this is a blessing for this life. Remember Jesus said, And seek ye first the kingdom of God in Matthew 6.33, and all these things will be added unto you. It includes this life. 
Now, let me give you an example. Janet and I are getting on a plane on Thursday heading to California. You know what one of our problems is? One of our problems is, is that there's too many people out there that we need to see if we're going to be there. I don't want them to listen to this this morning, but... Do you know, um, we're just really looking forward to being at Big Bear Lake Resort. And we got about five different people that we need to connect with because we're there. It's like we got this full calendar. Why? Why do we know those people? Do you know that everywhere we go on the globe, there's just people that we know. I left home at age 17 and went to Bible college and committed to ministry. And I only saw my mom and dad for up to two weeks at a time from then on until I did their funerals. And we often talked on the phone 600 miles apart and, oh, I'd like to come. And I do regret that I didn't go and deer hunt with my dad. I didn't think I had time or money. Now I'm like, that was stupid. Just always busy in the ministry, always busy with youth ministry and then getting Fellowship Bible Church going and putting your hand to the plow and serving the Lord. And do you know that I have at least a hundred mothers who all I have to do is call them up today and they would make me an apple pie? Wouldn't you, Mary? She would. Eva might not. But... You know why we got to see everybody out in California? Because it's, it's, it's a hundredfold brothers and sisters that are there. It's people we went to Bible college with and they pastor churches and they're in ministry and, and they're brothers and sisters in Christ and we love each other and we're looking forward to seeing them. And, and it's just people are everywhere. You see, God gives that kind of increase and He gives blessing. It's also a promise of eternal reward It's also a promise of eternal reward when the Lord will examine our works somehow at the Bema Seat. I'm not 100% what that looks like. But somehow the sacrifices of living for Christ will be rewarded in eternity future. And the reference is you'll be repaid a hundred times over. Now you tell me, if you can put a dollar in the machine and out pops a hundred dollar bill, is that a good return? It's a good return. See, Jim Elliott said he's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It's a good principle there, isn't it? Investing for Christ today for the return of tomorrow. It's what Jesus is talking about. Ultimately, he says, and you will inherit eternal life. In other words, you have come and followed me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. You have your faith and trust in me, and you now have eternal life. He then says, the last will be first and the first will be last. And what we're going to find out is that everybody in the kingdom of God is equal. Poor people and rich people, once you get into the kingdom, are all equal. And he's going to have a fascinating parable for that. How do we apply a message like this? Well, first of all, I hope you can get the point that a personal lack of wealth could perhaps be the greatest blessing in your life. You know that? You ever think about that? To not have very much money and wealth and means and to regularly have to turn to your Heavenly Father is a blessing, not a curse. And if you have so much that you ignore your relationship with your Heavenly Father, you're not blessed, you're cursed. Secondly, always remember that there are things that are more valuable than earthly wealth. I have experienced this over and over in relationships in the body of Christ. But we're blessed beyond measure physically and materially, no doubt. We're not wealthy people, but we are wealthy in kingdom resources and church resources. 
But what's more important than your salvation? What's more important than knowing your mom and dad are in heaven, that your children are going to be in heaven with you? That's worth more than money. What's more important than having the joy and the love of believers in Christ around you? I remember years ago, Margaret, at Junior's funeral, watching the cars line up to go to the cemetery, and I thought to myself, I might have said Donald Trump back then, there are a lot of rich people that would pay a lot of money to guarantee that this many people wanted to go to the cemetery when they die. Junior Laymaster was a wealthy man because of the body of Christ. You see, there are things that are more important than money and riches. So if you're driven to be wealthy, why? Why are you driven to be wealthy? What, what drives you? Maybe you're so driven that you're driving yourself away from the kingdom of heaven instead of into the kingdom of heaven. You better figure out your heart motives. Let's stand together and close in prayer, shall we please? Bow our heads. You stand before the holy judge of the universe and he looks at you, what does he see? Does he see someone who invested his whole life in earthly, the drive for earthly wealth? Is your drive for earthly wealth and comfort and riches getting in the way of your relationship with Christ, coming to God and total dependence upon Him? I trust that you'll examine your heart today as to why you want what you want and make sure what you have in earthly things does not become a barrier or a gate to entering the narrow way of following Christ. Examine your heart this morning, I beg you. Father, you know our hearts, you know our minds, and you know the challenges of living in a wealthy culture and society, and we are a blessed people. Would you help us to be good stewards of that? Would you help us to multiply our wealth for the kingdom and for laying up treasure in heaven, not for our own prestige, not out of a pride or driven so that people will look at us and think we are really something, but that people would only know that Jesus Christ is our Lord and our Master and everything we have belongs to Him. Encourage our hearts, I pray, as we depart in Jesus' name. Amen.